One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another edition of the Work-Life Balance on a Friday afternoon. I'm coming to you from lovely Knoxville, Tennessee, kind of the home of the University of Tennessee where I attended school. It's homecoming weekend and uh, happened to be playing at a local university uh, from Birmingham. So brought the family up, ready to, to hang out, have a great time at the game, uh, and know that uh, we'll be uh, finding some of you listeners out there. So we're, we're looking forward to that. Uh, but uh, we want to jump right into today's guest. I'll, I'll do recaps of the weeks and all that stuff uh, on next week's show. But we had somebody really exciting reach out to us, and we really wanted to, to make sure that we spent a lot of time with him. His name is uh, Scott Miller. He's a 23-year associate of Franklin Covey and serves as the executive vice president of Thought Leadership. Scott hosts multiple podcasts, including Franklin Covey's On Leadership and Great Life, Great Career. Additionally, Scott is the author of a multi-week Amazon number one new release, which is Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. Scott authors a weekly leadership column for Inc.com and is a frequent contributor on podcasts and webinars. And previously, Scott worked for the Disney Development Company, grew up in Central Florida, now lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, and has a wife and three sons. Let's welcome him to the show. How are you doing today, Scott? Rick, I'm awesome. Thanks for the intro. Delighted to be here. And, and so one of the common bonds we have is, is Central Florida and Disney. I, uh, I grew up there, worked there uh, as a child, as an 11-year-old, did the uh, Mickey Mouse Club, which we've had those guys on the show here. We just did the big 30-year reunion of the, the 90s version of the Mickey Mouse Club back uh, in, at Disney. We did it at Epcot, the World Pavilion. So uh, talk really quickly, where, where, did you, where did you grow up in Central Florida or live in Central Florida? Yes, I was born and raised in Winter Park, Florida, a uh, suburb of Orlando. Uh, Went to Winter Park High School, Rollins mm. College, worked for Disney for four years. And then when I was 26 years old, Disney invited me to leave, which is wow. a nice way of saying, you know what, you're fired. Uh, and so I discovered the Franklin Covey Company. They recruited me, hired me, and, and taught me a lot about leadership. And it's been an amazing 23-year journey ever since. Had a great run at Disney. Loved every minute of it. It was a great organization. I'm still friends with those who kicked me out and uh, never looked back. Yeah, a lot of times it's just leading you to the next great big thing, right? We, we don't That's see right. it as that then, but uh, now well with the work that you're doing at Franklin Covey. Really, really quickly, though, what year at Winter Park? Uh, by my high school year or which, yeah. what do you mean? High yeah, I was year, uh, yeah. 1986 in Winter Park High School. All right. So Student I'm a body graduate. president. There you go. I'm a graduate 1990 Dr. Phillips High. That's why I was asking because we really? were big. Yeah. yeah, we were big rivals. We always played each other. Oh, we always the... kicked you in football. Oh. <laughs> we, 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 yeah, it's not even close. Go Wildcats. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here to talk about the, the book, though, and, and you sent me a, a copy of it, and it was it was brilliant. Loved it. Uh, the, the Management Mess book. What, what led you to to write this book, and why now? You know, Rick, I've been in the leadership space for you know, almost 30 years, right? My entire career has been focused on leadership development at Franklin Covey, which I think is the world's most reputable and renowned leadership development firm. We produce a lot of books. We've sold 40 million books. And as a leader myself of people, I was searching for a kind of a different kind of book for the non-conventional leader, right? The guy like me who always takes two steps forward and one step back. And most leadership books, which I've read hundreds of them, are fairly academic. They're kind of aspirational. And I wanted a book that was really real and relatable. I didn't find one. So I wrote one. And I wrote one about all my own sort of management messes and kind of gave um, a bit of a sense of permission to be vulnerable about your own messes. And I wrote about 30 of mine. My wife's convinced I'll never work again because the book is <laughs> a little bit raw. But it's done so well. It's sold, you know, phenomenally well because I think people were tired of these kind of everything always works out nice wrapped up in a bow leadership books. And this one just calls it out. Leadership is tough. It's, it's unrelenting. It can be unrewarding in the short term, and it isn't for everyone. Not everyone should be a leader of people. I totally agree with that, and, and, and that's the huge difference between manager by title and leader by, by result. But, uh, you know, the, the first thing that caught me about the book when I read it, it first of all, let's, let's describe it a little bit. For, for our listeners, because I really like the format of the 30 day. It's almost a, a, as a 30 day challenge, right? It, it's, right. you know, it's broken up very nicely and, and 
kind of focus on one thing for each day to, to start to build that leadership success. And I think that a lot of bo- books don't do that. They'll, they'll tell you stories and they'll tell you these are the things that, to work on, but not necessarily say, okay, today we're focusing on this. How, how did you come up with that piece and, and where did that thought pattern come from? Well, thanks for asking. You know, I've been in the book business for a long time. I lead the book division for Franklin Covey. And the problem with most books, this is a broad statement, but it's, I think, insightful, is that authors write books kind of enslaved to their publisher, right? The publisher pays you for 60,000 words, and most authors have about 40,000 words in them, yep. which is why the last half of most business books suck and no yeah. one ever reads them <laughs> because the authors are just phoning it in to make their, their you know, their, their, their word count. So I decided not to write a book enslaved to my publisher, but to write a book that I thought would be read. So I wrote a short book. It's an easy to read book. This book is not, not war and peace. This book is not good to great, right? It's just a good practical book. Each chapter is like two to three pages. It's based on a 30 day calendar around these 30 challenges with very specific to do's. It's funny. It's, it's riotous. It's shock worthy at points, not for, not, on purpose, but just kind of here are mistakes that I made. And I think people are into shorter books, like really short because everybody is super busy. People are trying to listen to it on audio on their way to their work or they're reading it on a plane. So I tried to write a book that I thought people would read, not just a book I wanted to write. Well, and, and you know, I work with uh, directly with John Maxwell. And uh, w- one of the things I enjoy about John is he always asks us as well is why did you write the book? Like people come up all the time. I want to write a book. I want to write this. And he goes, but why? Like, who's going to read it? And it sounds almost like he's being condescending to that. But really, most people want to write books because they think they have a story to tell and they're not taking the reader on a journey that the reader needs to yeah. be on. Right. And that's yeah. what I enjoyed about your book. Nicely said. Thanks. And I built the book around these 30 challenges that everybody faces. I mean, the fact is, Rick, there was a hundred challenges when we started. And I say I had some friends helping me in the company. We culled them down into 30 challenges that everyone faces in their leadership journey, whether it be leader of your family, leader of the Cub Scouts, leader of your division, leader of your own company. There, there are very common challenges that everybody faces in their work and professional life. What's interesting, I'm, I'm going to go right into chapter one because chapter one, um, touched me, but it also, it, it hits me in, in a way that um, I'm having difficulty in, in getting other leaders to understand. And that's the humility side, right? You, you're talking about, you know, have humility. Um, and a lot of leaders that, that I talk to, when you start talking about coaching, about investing in yourself and really doing those types of things, they think, well, I've been successful all my life by doing what I'm doing. I don't yeah. need to change. Um, and so I, I felt like having that is like hit you in the face right out of the first challenge. Um, are you getting reaction to that? What are some of the comments you're getting from, from people that have read the book around that chapter? Yeah, you know, one of the smartest things I've heard in my career is that people like you and I that, you know, are in our 50s or 60s, I don't know how old you are, perhaps I'm older than you, um, I am a little bit older than you, that people will say, you know, I got 30 years of experience or 25 years of experience. The fact of the matter is, no, you have, you have, you know, one year of experience repeated 24 times. Wow. And that the older you get, you got to remember that you need to disrupt yourself and that things are changing. And you may not have 30 years of experience. You may have one year of experience repeated 29 times. So I think the, the more higher up we are in the letterhead, the higher up in the organization, people are lying to us. We're insulated. We don't have a lot of self-awareness. Our blind spots become bigger because people don't confront the boss's boss or the CEO. And you have to be out seeking feedback. You have to be humble. And I used to think wrongly that humble people were quiet people and meek people and shy people. And it's actually not true at all. It's, you, can be, you can be charismatic and be humble. You can be loud and you can still be humble because humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. Mm-hmm. So if you can check your ego, step aside, recognize your job isn't to be the smartest person in the room or have all the answers. Your job is to find the smartest people possible and build a culture where they choose to thrive and stay. You will kind of automatically move into some humble tendencies because humility is born out of confidence. Confident people can become humble people. It's arrogant people that are incapable of showing humility. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I just heard uh, Rachel Hollis say something too, is in terms of trying things, and, and you'll you'll go try things, but you won't go through it because you're afraid that somebody's going to see you fail. So it's so it, true. It's not that your yeah. fear; it's your ego. 
I love driving. that you're a Rachel Hollis fan. I was on her podcast this week, and I, can you believe Rachel Hollis inviting me down to speak at her Rise Business event oh, next there, week in South Charleston? Carolina? Yeah, yeah. In South yeah. Carolina. Yeah, I'm going to be on stage on Saturday. We're, we're, oh, that's fantastic. We're huge fans of, of Rachel. She just did Live to Lead with us uh, on the John Maxwell team. Uh, I and see. Then she yeah. uh, did leaderships yeah. with John. So, uh, well, if I kill it on stage, I'm coming to you for the John Maxwell gig. Okay, bring it, bring it. <laughs> we, we'd love to have you. We'd love to have you. But right, yeah, Rachel is not to speak too much about her, but the, her other quote of um, "In this day and age, uh, ignorance is a choice." That is, yeah. th that's to yeah. me one of the best things I've heard from stage in quite some time. Yeah, well said. So. You've got a chapter in here that piqued my interest. Like I, I almost wanted to jump right to this chapter before, you know, reading the book. And that was specifically in, you know, the show is aptly titled The Work-Life Balance. And so you had some interesting takes on the work-life balance I wanted you to, to kind of talk through there. Um, and so first, just your thoughts on work-life balance and, and where you think it, it lands. Yeah, it's a bit of a fallacy, right? A lot of people talk about how how easy it is or important. It's a little bit of a fallacy. All, all of us are, and at least if we're, we're you know high-producing you know professionals, we have unlimited choices and we have daunting options ahead of us. And we're not going to have less choices next year. So we've got to be more deliberate every day. We have to be very deliberate in the decisions we make how we spend our time, how we invest our attention, our energy, and our talent. Because it's difficult because the fact of the matter is most of us spend more time at work with our colleagues than we do awake at home with our family and friends. And when that sobering reality hits you, you realize, wow, you know, how do I spend my time very carefully on both of these? And I don't think our lives are, are, um, in, are, are separated, right? You don't, most people don't have a personal life and they have a professional life, right? Because with our phones everywhere and 24-7 economy and market, you know, the global marketplace, we're always on. So you have to be more deliberate around creating some boundaries for yourself. So I think it's important to remember your job is your career. Your job is not your life. And, you, and, and as a great leader, as an influential leader, you have to understand what you model gets done. So you've got to set some boundaries for yourself. You have to realize that all your actions are watched by others. Even if you're not a formal leader, what you're doing is watched by your friends, by your family, by your colleagues, by your kids. And this quote I love, you know, nobody wished they spent more time at the office on their deathbed. It's so true. Right. And all of us are super hardworking. I work a ton and I've got to be more deliberate around taking time to myself, to my family, nurturing myself. And if, for those of you who are leaders listening today, what you model gets done. So you've got to take a vacation. You have to take time off because if you don't, you will subconsciously become jealous of those who do yeah. and you'll be a victim and you'll punish them and you'll be, a, you'll, you'll victimize them. And then they'll quit because the new generation wants to have a more balanced life than I think the older generation. We, they feel less obligated. They feel more empowered to have choices, which they do. So it's important that everybody be multidimensional and don't become one-dimensional enslaved to your job or to your business because then you can't contribute your best. And by the way, if you're a high-producing workaholic, it's not always a bad thing, right? There's seasons in our life. Sometimes I'm a workaholic, sometimes I'm not. In all things in life, there are, you know, waves and it kind of know which season you're in and repair. But you need to be reading, listening, relaxing, vacationing, energizing. These are traits that are going to keep your energy and your stamina up for when you need it. But you cannot pound it out all day long. You know, burnout is a real thing. Oh, yeah. This isn't a chapter in a book. This is a real thing that people are facing. And as a leader you have to be able to not just empower your people to take some time off. You got to show them how to do it. And you know, quite frankly, take a vacation because people need a break from you. Yeah. People need three days with you out of the office to kind of gather their wits, get their work done. Don't come back with 15 new ideas that you think they need to work on because they've been lazy. You know, they've been working their hearts out when you're out of the office. Yeah. The quote you actually put in the book too, that, that just really caught my eyes when you said leaders need to take time off to invest in themselves. And you're saying that doesn't necessarily mean vacation or what you know, hobbies or uh, all the other things, but just take time to invest in you. And, and I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. We're going to have a lot more from Scott Miller and he uh, is going to share some more of these wonderful quotes and ideas and thoughts from this latest book, Management Mess, the Leadership Success. 
Uh, we're going to do that right after the break. You're listening to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon, spending some time with Scott Miller. He's uh, with Franklin Covey, just released a book. It's killing it, and we're discussing that further. And, you know, Scott... um, I love people that, that walk the walk, talk the talk. And, and one of my favorite things is networking. And, and uh, you know, John has taught us, uh, who do you know that I should know? And so we were just talking on break. And so you, we're going to get you into John Maxwell, but then I got to come meet Rachel. That's, that, that, that's going to be the, the quid pro quo here. Okay. Of what's going to go down. I'll do my <laughs> best. I'll do my best. <laughs> but um, so, so coming back to this, one of the things I, I, I wanted to kind of pivot off the book here for just a second uh, because I'm fascinated uh, when I get to meet executives, especially, I mean, Franklin Covey is very respected. My first real professional class was the time management class that oh. Franklin Covey was known for for so long and how to schedule an eight-hour day. And I've never forgotten that, right? And, and so to me, that's, that, that's you know, great material. But you're a large organization. We are. And, and you, you, you have a, a big role in that organization. Yeah. You just said that yeah. you led the book division. Um, you, you know, you do all this different content. Um, your title again, just really quickly. Well, I've been the chief marketing officer for the last eight years. Now I'm the executive vice president of thought leadership. So my job is is to make sure that all of our thought leaders are out speaking, writing books, writing articles on television, radio podcasts, things like that. And so I, I, I feel like there's a huge issue in getting you all the information that you need so that you can make decisions. Meaning, you know, people aren't going to want to tell you, you know, things are going wrong because they feel like it's a reflection of them. So how do you build that trust with, with a team that just can throw it down on the table, be raw and, and early enough to where you can make a solid decision to be able to pivot out of a, a risk situation? Well, you said some of the answers to the question right there. I think first is what kind of culture are you creating? If you've created a culture of fear, people are going to lie to you and obfuscate and give you wrong news all day long. I have a mantra in my team where um, bad news is acceptable, but wrong news is unacceptable. Wrong news means you're incompetent. Bad news means you're human, right? There's things yeah. fall apart, right? The, 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 the pipeline doesn't deliver like you hoped it would do, or your or client doesn't close the deal or sign the contract. So as a leader, I think it is your job to make it safe for others to tell you the truth. Because if you don't, then you create a culture of fear where you will be lied to and be the emperor with no clothes. So you, you've got to demonstrate that you can handle bad news. And when it comes your way, you don't blow up. You don't lose your cool. You make it safe for others to tell you the truth. Because like you said, I have mantra to my team. The longer you wait to give me the bad news, the more you lessen my ability to solve it. You cut off all my options. Every hour, you don't tell me that the building is flooding or that the client, you know, didn't sign the $100,000 deal, you cut off all my options to save you and me and honor my promises to the CEO. So that comes at the head of a leader. It is your responsible responsibility to create a culture 
where people can um, move outside their comfort zone, right, and take some risks and fears. And so you don't you don't build a trust culture overnight. In fact, I often say in a, my keynotes, Rick, raise your hand if you're trustworthy. Everyone raises their hand, right? Of course. And I say, no, put your hand down. Who decides if you're trustworthy? Wow. And everybody says the other person, right? You don't get to decide if you're trustworthy. Trust is an outcome of your behavior. Have you behaved yourself into a reputation of being trustworthy? So if you want to build a high trust culture, as a leader, you have to make sure you've built trust in your relationships. And you you say in your book that any success that you've achieved in life is a direct oh. result of someone extending trust or allowing you to learn a critical leadership trait. So how, You know what? Everyone's successes are because of that. If you are self-aware and you are introspective, you'll be, you can draw a straight line from where you are today back to someone in sixth grade or fourth grade. Right? I, I leave two pages open in the book. And I, and, I, and I write out the names of like seven people who had a, a, a tangible impact on my success, who extended trust to me. Sometimes I didn't even deserve it or worse when I had violated it. But they, but they chose to be abundant and not scarce. They chose to raise me up. So in the book, I leave two pages and I say, write down the people that have extended trust to you in your life. Was it your sixth grade you know, economics professor? probably eighth grade. Was it your you know, high school football coach? Was it your, your neighbor, your first boss at McDonald's? Who was it? And what did that mean to you? Think back to the first lawn you mowed, right? Or your first girlfriend's father, whoever it was. Think back and give them credit. And then on the next facing page, I say, write down the names of people that you should extend some trust to, even if they violated it in the past. Now, some people have had their trust violated. That's not ever appropriate to re-extend sure, to, right? Sure, sure. But if you were to extend trust to them, what impact could it have on their life? E even if they didn't honor the trust, you don't extend trust just because someone's going to honor it or reciprocate, right? That's kind of an abundance mentality. I trust people all the time that could screw me. Now, if they screw me, it's not going to take me down because I haven't given them my, my bank account, right? Or invited them to my home. I extend a lot of trust that falls flat, but that's okay because my expectations are low, I hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Right, sowing seeds, right? You, some seeds well fall said. on infertile ground. That's right, right, so right. well said. The, uh, uh, that's, that's Maxwellism, I won't take that one. But, um, but still, <laughs> it's, it's something that we, we live our life by. But at, at the same time, who's then that first person that pops into your mind if I was going to ask who was on that page? Oh, it's Jane Begala. This is my next door neighbor in Winter Park, Florida. When she went to college, I was in the high school and she walked away from like a four-year, very lucrative business at the local farmer's market. Every Saturday morning, she went down to the Swiss Alpine Bakery and loaded up her car full of croissants and baguettes and French bulls and danishes, drove them over to the farmer's market and sold, you know, 400 bucks worth and she got to keep 25%. So here she's making a hundred bucks on a Saturday. That was big money back in the eighties, right? Sure, sure. And she walked away from a four-year business, handed it over to me. And I, and, I, and I kept that business going for four or five years until I handed it over. But uh, Jane Begala, who lives in Denver now, who I write about in the, in the book, I share this story. She taught me the power of extending trust to others and being grateful when people extend it to you. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. So in your 30 days that, you, that you've got listed here, what, what is your go-to like if, if, if I was only going to read one chapter of this book, what's the go-to chapter? Oh, come on, bro. That's I tough. know. I know um, it's tough. You know what? There's probably there's, three, but I'll pick one. Uh, you know what? I'll let you have three. Okay. Chapter challenge 15 is called show loyalty. And this is all about stopping the gossip in your life. Dr. Covey, who wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book has sold 30 million copies in its 30th year. He has a famous quote. He says, when you defend those who are absent, you build trust with those who are present. Wow. And that basically means stop being disloyal to those who are absent. Speak about everyone as if they were standing right in front of you at the conference table, at the dinner table, in the grocery store. Stop trashing people. Stop talking bad about people. If you've got something to say, take them aside in an appropriate setting, look them in the eye and say, my intent is to help you, right? So I think if you want to build a culture of trust, stop the gossip today. 
The next one I would say is declaring your intent. You know, lacking facts, people will make stuff up, including about your intent. We all have agendas. We all have hidden agendas. But when you, when you surface them, people are much more likely to trust you. I love this quote from Blaine Lee, one of our co-founders. He says, nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. I'm going to repeat it. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations at work with your spouse, with the guy who's detailing your car, with the kid who's mowing your lawn, with your mother-in-law on what to expect for Thanksgiving dinner, you name it, right? Clarify expectations so people can't, can't ascribe motive to you because lacking understanding your motive, people will decide what your motive is for you, especially as a leader. Open the conversation and say, my intent in this conversation is not to slow your project down. I want to speed it up. But there are five areas I have confusion about. And as soon as I'm clear on those, I will be your biggest champion. That's super helpful, right? Sure. Just to clear your intent. Lastly, I'd say, listen first. I think it's the third chapter. As yeah. leaders were so enculturated to speak and communicate and clarify the message and clarify our mission, our vision, we're always in persuasion mode and influence mode, but you can't be a great leader if you're not a great listener because you can't show empathy when you're talking. So what Dr. Covey talks about how with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. Slow down. Stop asking so many questions. As leaders, we're taught to peel the onion and get to the root cause. And that's great for the P&L and for you know, inventory turns and supply chain, but with people, a lot of time when you're asking questions or on your own narrative, your own agenda, in your own timeline, just close your mouth. People will tell you what they need you to know. That's fantastic. In fact, I need to, I need to take a break right there and digest some of that. So we're going to go ahead and do another quick break. We'll be right back with Scott Miller. You're listening. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end -end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the work-life balance. And we're back having a fascinating conversation with Scott Miller talking about his book from management mess to leadership success. And, uh, you know, it was funny, you, you just hit the quote about, uh, ex, you know, be explicit. And, um, yeah, I've been a project turnaround specialist for, for Xerox in, in my, one of my prior careers. Uh, but that was the first thing that I would do is I would teach them unless that we had explicit service level agreements, requirements and things, then we have to live with the implicit ones. And so I'd always teach them, I'd say, okay, I'm coming right over. What does that mean to you? And, right. And they said, Oh, five minutes. And I go, Nope, it's going to be six days before I show up. But huh. to me, that's what coming right over means. Huh. It's different to you. Yeah. But I have to say, I'll be over there in five minutes. Right. right? It, and, that, and basically, we could turn whole IT departments around by having explicit service level agreements of what we're going to provide when and for what cost. Right. It, yeah. It's, 
it, that was like my number one go-to thing. So I love that so much. Well said. I, I, I like that too. I, I want to um, I want to dive in uh, here in, in this segment around the leading difficult conversations. Right. I think yes. it's chapter sixteen yeah. in the book. Um, and I, I think that that I even as a business owner and somebody who's been a consultant, I'll still struggle with you know the really hard ones. You know. You'll have uh, an employee that's worked with you for for 20 years that you got to come down on or, you know, things like that. But talk to me about a little bit of the process that that you had in this book around that. Rick, this is my favorite of all the 30 challenges. It's the one I'm actually decent at. The rest, I'm a total cluster mess. So (laughs) thanks for asking this one. This is a competency that is incumbent on every leader. If you can't summon the courage to have these high stakes conversations, you don't have a right to be a leader. You need to step aside. Because Mm -hmm. most people in their careers have had leaders who were pansies when it came to talking about their blind spots and about their um, self-awareness. So this is the biggest gift you can give other people is to diplomatically, courageously, with consideration, talk about what their blind spots are. We all have them, right? You've got them. I've got them. Everybody's got them. The CEO, people know them. They're talking about them. As a leader, it is your job to move outside your own comfort zone and have these conversations. And and they're not easy. Mm-mm. People say to me, oh, Scott, it's so tough for you. I didn't come out of the womb having high courage conversations, right? I, I had them. I screwed them up. And I, I did some that were probably borderline not legal, right? Because I said the wrong thing and got slapped on the hand and my 15th one became much better. Now my 500th one goes really well. But there's a couple of a couple of commonalities that I think if people follow, you can be better at high courage conversations. And by the way, Rick, I've had them. I mean, I've talked about, I've talked about everything, your punctuality, your inability to ever pay someone a compliment, your inability to ever say that you dropped the ball and you made a mistake, your inability to share credit. I talked about your personal hygiene, I mean, I've had conversations about the fact that if you're like me, you've broken through your deodorant, I'm starting to notice, and that's a high courage conversation. But if you love your people, you will do that. Here's a couple of tips. Role play it with your executive team, with your HR. If you don't have a company or a colleague, go to your wife or someone because when you role play it, your partner can see what your body language is like, right? And are you being empathetic and are you being clear? Because you can be too considerate and beat around the bush the message, yeah. and you can be too courageous and then verbally eviscerate someone like literally damage their self-esteem or their self-worth. It's a balance. These high courage conversations are a balance of courage and consideration. That's a gift to your people. Here's a great example. Let's say Rick that I'm calling you in because you've got an issue. I'm going to say this. Hey Rick, thanks for joining my office. I want you to know my intent is to help you build a great career here. And I really want you to succeed. But I have to be very clear. You're exhibiting some behaviors that if they continue, they are going to result in me having to exit you from the firm and you will not work here anymore. Now, I might use some of the wrong words. And in fact, I may even be nervous about this. So I'm going to ask you to pre-forgive me if I don't say exactly the right thing. But my intent is to help you. And I don't want that to get lost in my own nervousness and perhaps me you know, needing a do-over on a couple of the phrases that I say. I've noticed and you get the point, right? Those those are very, very fair things to say. Most leaders lack the courage to discuss the undiscussables. But I'll tell you, Rick, I fired a lot of people in my career and I'm friends with most of them. And inevitably, when I cross one of them in the airport at a train station or on LinkedIn, they all say the, the same thing. They say, Scott, man, you were a jerk. But you know what? You were the one person in my career that had the courage to call out some of my blind spots. And I want to thank you for that. Nobody since or before that had ever done that. It was a huge gift you gave me. Now, you can do that in a way that is sensitive, right? Sure. But like I said, if you're too sensitive, then you'll find yourself kind of like missing the opportunity. So I think the best things to do are to role play it. Get it down, not in a robotic way, but then just to say, you know what? This is a sensitive conversation. And not, you know what? I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone. So I want you to know that this isn't easy for me, but I have your best interest at heart and I really have your back. So let's talk about something that you might not be aware of that's happening, but I want to make sure that you're, you are aware of it so you can improve and it, or, or the consequences, right? That will get easier and it's a huge gift to your people. But like anything, right? You you have to take action. You, you actually said something, and, and I had a reaction to it um, 
because there's a dear friend of mine that I must say that to at least once a week. And you said you you didn't come out of the womb doing that. Yeah. And, and so it's these <laughs> these people that you, you can just see all the potential in them and you can see where they can go. And they, they just won't take that step, right? And, and, and they don't want to take the step because they're afraid of failure. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you know, you're awesome at this and you didn't come out of the womb knowing that, but you've done it so many times. Now it's second nature to you. Um, and so talk about, you know, that hard step of taking action. You know, I've, I've got six books out there, but that first one was just brutal, right? Just beating myself up. Didn't think who's going to listen to me, who's going to listen to this podcast, you know, that kind of stuff, right? How do you, how do you get yourself jazzed to, to get into that next layer? You know, I don't care a lot what people think about me and and my wife, my wife thinks I'm an arrogant schmuck. I'm not, I'm 51. She's 36. So she still cares what people think about her. I say, honey, reach 40. You'll stop caring as much, but (laughs) that's not meant to be cavalier. Right. I mean, I I care about my my wife. Right. But I, I, I don't, I don't run my life based on what people think about me. I, I, I increasingly try to be vulnerable and I'm a Catholic, so I confess a lot, so it's easy for me. But I don't mean to be a walking confessional. I mean to be helpful, right? I've sure. made some – I've been very successful. I've had a lot of failures. I've made a lot of bad decisions. And I'm willing to share those with others to help help um, accelerate their path to success. The book for me was actually quite easy because I've been writing a lot, right? Writing, writing LinkedIn posts and kind of honing my writing skill. I had someone helping me, you know, having a ghostwriter is not that uncommon. I wrote the book, but my colleague helped to kind of tighten up some of the chapters and shorten stories. But I'll tell you how how it came to me is I was interviewing Stephen M. R. Covey. He's Dr. Covey's oldest son, wrote the amazing book, The Speed of Trust, right? This book sold 2 million copies. He's a force of nature. And I was interviewing him once and said, hey, Stephen, was it difficult being under Dr. Covey's shadow, right? 30 sure. million copies, you know, time man, man of the year, all that kind of stuff. And he said, no, my dad was the public guy, but at home, he was very private and all about affirming our potential. And I said, well, did you ever feel the need to write a book? He said, you know, I didn't, Scott, because I didn't have anything to say. I was the CEO of a company. I wasn't an author. He said, until one day, I did have something to say. And when I did, I wrote The Speed of Trust. And it was that day on the set that I said, wow, you know, I finally think I've got something to say. And so I just, it's sort of flowing from me and I organized it well and I had some help obviously. And the book Management Mess has done so well that the publisher has now ordered seven more books. My second one's coming out in 2020 called Marketing Mess to Brand Success. The third one is Job Mess to career success, and I have parenting mess to launch success, and I've got a sales book and a communication book, and I've got kind of a a nice mess to success genre building. But I think what Rachel Hollis said is so true. People aren't afraid of failure. They're afraid of people seeing them fail. And once you don't really care about that, it's amazing the things that you can do. And you know what also? People wanna help you. People can't help you if they don't know your dreams. People can't help you if you don't ask. I mean, break, I asked you, could I, you know, be part of the Maxwell, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and I work for Franklin Covey, right? And you asked me to hook you up with Rachel Hollis. And so, you know, don't be shy. You know, don't be a don't be a um a braggart or you know, a pest, but I'm not afraid to ask someone, hey, can I be a part of that? Hey, can I have some of that? Hey, can I join that? I ask that all day long and it pays off in spades. Well, you're actually here because you reached out to me and asked, hey, I saw this thing That's over right. here. I'd love to have a, a, a part of that. Is that cool? And, and so you and I started the totally. dialogue and now it's turning into two different podcasts, right? I mean, Wait, can, I, can I share a short story with you? Sure, sure. So Rachel Hollis bought my book because she heard me on Donald Miller's podcast, the guy that runs StoryBrand. Okay. She bought the book, fell in love with it, flew me down this past week to her office to teach her staff and be on her podcast. And we, and we left. That was nice. It was great. Have a good life. A day later, I send her an email and say, hey, I saw you on Good Morning America. You crushed it. I said, I love being with your group. By the way, I'd love to be at your rise event in Charleston. If anybody comes down with the flu, which I hope they do, yeah. I'd be happy to come and take their place. A day later, she emails me and invites me to come because she was so impressed with my, with my speech. She gave up. 45 minutes of her own time at the rise event. I would Mm. not be going to Charleston, which I'm going to crush as well. If I hadn't asked her now, fortunately I built some trust with her, right? And she felt that I was credible, but 
people can't help you if you don't ask. That's that's amazing. That's a, and I saw the same Good Morning America thing, by the way. Oh, she um, was amazing, wasn't oh, she's she? Great, awesome, she's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Rachel Hollis is the next combination: Tony Robbins, Oprah Winfrey. I agree. I agree. She's she's a powerhouse, and and the beauty of it is is how she came to be. It's it's, it's true. Just action. She just I've got something to say. And she started out as like a a, a food blogger. Yeah, well, that. But then, like yes. her first like blogging right. and, and video right. thing, she was like exchanging recipes and crap. It's right? true. That's how she started. Yes. Yeah. Um, and can I tell you just to finish that thought because we yeah. like Rachel and Rachel deserves the props. Rachel's mission is job creation. Yeah. She wants to create jobs for people and build an enterprise for people at the entry level. Also, she's passionate about um, free market economy and being capitalist and creating jobs for people and lifting them up. And I say kudos to Rachel Hollis. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, so we're going to, I'm going to go ahead and take a little bit of break early because I'm, I'm going to come back with a couple of questions that we ask most of our guests. And I, I just, I, I feel like you're going to need a little bit more time to answer it. So I'm going to take a little bit of a break early here. We'll be right back with Work-Life Balance, Rick Morris. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. That's so we're back to the work-life balance. I, I, I get uh, a lot of listener comments and tweets and that kind of stuff during the show. One of my dear friends, uh, John Watson's always on here. He's, he's just a loyal listener, great friend, somebody that, that I've, I've known for quite some time, one of the best connectors I know. And, and so just so you know, Scott, he just said that uh, we've had some great guests on the show, but th- this is tops. And oh, then he remembered, we were, <laughs> we were talking on break about when I shared stage with uh, Dr. Covey, he was there. So, oh, wow. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> coming back to it, um, one of my favorite questions to ask, and, and I always hit my, my guests blind with it because, you know, I just want to get to the root of it. But what's some of the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, I'm going to tell you this. Um, and sorry to beat a drum, but it's from Dr. Covey. Yeah. Dr. Covey taught me that people have two types of mindset, an efficient mindset and an effective mindset. I am a very efficient person. I like to do checklists. I get up early. I like to go fast, fast, fast. I do everything fast. I'm at Home Depot at 5 a.m. on Saturday morning buying the marigolds. They're planted by 6 a.m. The car is washed by 7. The yard is raked by 8. And I'm ready to go. And that's good in some areas of our life. But if you have an efficiency paradigm with people, you're in trouble. You are efficient with things, processes, systems, and meetings. You are effective with people. And I mentioned earlier that Dr. Covey said with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. That I have to remember to slow down with my relationships, be effective with people 
and efficient with things because I treat taking my three boys who are five, seven, and nine to get ice cream on Saturday like I rake the yard as fast as possible and as good as possible when the opposite should be true. I should be taking as long as possible with my kids. And it should take an hour. We should laugh. And when the ice cream drops on the ground, who cares? It was a dollar. Buy a new scoop. He's four, right? And so I've really learned when to have an efficiency mindset and when to have an effectiveness mindset. And I think it's good advice for all of us because everybody's in this hyper-productive mode, more with less, faster, faster, faster. You know, more is not better. Better is better. And in almost every sense in life, I think that's valuable. And I have to struggle against it. I mean, for me, it's struggle because I am a fast-paced person and I've got to realize, you know what? My wife says I never live in the moment. I'm always living in the future. And she's right. And that has served me well in my career. And it's not served me well in my friendships and my family. Yeah, and, and I, I know a lot of leaders that that they, they say they schedule time for work-life balance. They say they schedule time for the wife, but they do treat the relationship as a checklist. They, they, you know, all right, told her I love her, check, kissed her goodbye, check, you know, that, that kind of stuff versus really investing in what they care about, what they know about, how it works, yeah. you know, all that stuff. I, I think Can I share a tip advice. there? Please bring it. Just real, real quick. Um, this is a bit technique but you know, I'm okay with technique things if they change your paradigm sure. and they end up changing your behavior. When someone comes into your office next, close your laptop. Take off your glasses, take your phone, turn it over. They're techniques, but it will show to the other person that they are your focus. Don't try to multitask with people. It's not possible. The human brain is not wired to do two things with excellence at the same time. At the end of the day, in every organization, your most valuable asset is not your patents or your trademark or your brand or your supply chain or your pricing. All that can be ripped off and stolen. In every organization, your most valuable asset is not your people. That is bunk. Your most valuable asset are the relationships between your people. Because if Rick and Scott are both geniuses, but they can't get along, they can't forgive each other, they can't pre-forgive each other, they can't compliment each other, I don't need them. I need Rick and Scott to be able to like work together and realize that Rick's left brain and Scott's right brain, that's okay. And the two of you can figure it out. In an organization, your ultimate competitive advantage are the relationships between your people. And I believe that unequivocally. I, I love that. And I actually mouthed people when you said that, because I, I say people are your greatest asset, but I, I love that, that, that take on it. Yeah. It's, it's caring it's, you know, about you know, it's a nice It's a nice adage. But again, if your people can't work yeah. together and get along and trust each other and move fast, right? I mean, why do I need you? Go right. work somewhere else and be a genius. Yeah. I need you to be a genius here and pre-forgive people. I love this idea of pre-forgiveness. It's a whole new concept. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things that are crass. You're going to say things you regret. Try not to. But you're pre-forgiven because I assume your intent is good. You didn't, you didn't come to work this morning and say, my job is direct Rick's day, right? Yeah. You came with the skills you have. And my, my job as a leader is to sit you down and say, Rick, what were you thinking, man? Stop saying that. It's killing your brand. It's yeah. also killing Curtis's self-esteem. Do you want Curtis to feel better or worse when he's around you, right? Leave people better off than you found them. That's your legacy. And so speaking of legacy, Legacy, you, you just you, you said something a second ago too. You said you know not to beat a dead horse, but you know I, I feel I do the same thing with John, and and I I had had gravitated towards John uh, because I believed in him, I trusted him. Yeah. He, you know his books, same thing I'm sure with you and and, and Dr. Covey. Huge fan, huge oh, fan. Oh yeah, but then but then to experience them, they're both of them. They're so authentic. They're so real. Um, and and you know it's it's. I feel like from a legacy perspective that we, we get to, and John says it all the time, you're the legs to my legacy. Hmm. Um, but I believe that we get to carry that heart forward. We put our twist on it, but we carry our heart forward. But I, I feel like I could drop a Maxwell quote every 30 seconds. I, I know. Right? It's, okay. it's the same way with it's, you. No, so. Well, take no offense. Yeah. 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 So I pre forgive you for how much <laughs> you, you hold up Dr. Kelly in, in his books were, were phenomenal. I mean, the seven habits of highly effective people is probably the first management book I ever really yeah, bought and read yeah. and consumed. Um, and then I, I went to 21 irrefutable laws of leadership, right? It, yes, it's like the, yes. they're, they're right there. They're, 
they're incredible people and just different takes. Everybody has different yeah. voices. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's the one thing I, I, I want to close on here too, is, you know, what, what you've said in this book and, and, and I'm not, I'm not being mean by any means. What you said in this book has been said before. And, totally. And most of the things yes. that John has said has been yes. said before, yeah. but they haven't heard it from you. Right. And so that's my challenge to those that are listening that think that they can do the podcast, that they can write the book. You can't. And don't think because somebody said it before means that you can't go out there and, and say it and, and build on a fantastic. Right. What's your twist? Idea. What's your twist yeah. on the idea? Right. And what's yeah. your authenticity? Right. Yeah. What's your authenticity with that quote? And how did that quote change your life? And how did you apply it? Right. right. It's not just right. someone said it's someone said. And then this is it's, what I did. And that, that Rick, becomes your unique story. That was a criticism inside Franklin Covey. A lot of people say, well, you're just taking the same content. repackaging it. Exactly. I'm, I'm coming at it from a guy who really struggled with leadership, where leadership wasn't easy for me. In fact, I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people. I might have just been better off being a great kick-butt individual producer. Leadership of people does not come easy to me. So I wanted to give voice to those that also have messes, and that's why it's done so well, because not everybody is Stephen Covey. Not everybody is John Maxwell, right? We aspire to them, but it's a really high standard. And so I wanted to give voice to those like me that find leadership rewarding in the long term, but really frustrating in the short term. And I think he did. I again, I I consumed the book. I thought it was beautiful. Thank you, Rick. Done. I love the fact that it's a thirty day challenge. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, um, the entire mess of success series will all follow the same format. So, marketing mess to brand success comes out in the summer of twenty twenty. It'll be thirty day challenge, as will the other ones as well. So that just means you have to come back when those come out. So dude, I'd be honored. It, right? Let's I, do dude, it. Dude, I'd be honored. Let's I'd have be a honored. whole series. Okay. We'll hey, just have a you, Scott you, Miller series. You can't help me if I don't ask. So I'll come <laughs> ask. <laughs> so for those of you listening, again, the book is Management Mess, The Leadership Success. It's a 30-day challenge series. You can get it anywhere you want to get it, I'm sure. Um, we'll, we'll, in fact, if you ask, you know, Scott or I may just drop it off at your house for you so go get it <laughs> you never know right if you go get it go read it go consume it scott any final words for the audience you know uncover your mission not everybody knows what their mission is sometimes you have to uncover it discover it create it yourself uh, the most important thing in your life is your reputation mm -hmm. and your relationships guard them with great care and jealousy amen well scott again we'd love to have you back we want you to come back thank as, you Rick. as much as you want um, and my audience is already saying, Hey, bring him back, uh, next week. So, um, next week, uh, it, we're, we're going to have kind of a, uh, an off week. Uh, we'll do a catch up series there. Um, but please join us on next Friday, just like you do every Friday, listening to the work life balance. If you're podcasting, reach out to us, uh, hit us on Twitter. It's at Rick A. Morris, uh, Rick at Rick A. Morris.com or R. Morris at R. Square Consulting.com. Until then gang, we hope that you live your own work life balance and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show.